Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle and thank you for joining us at www.sonic-cinema.com. Before we start the third year of the Sonic Cinema Podcast, I want to uh, point you in the direction of the Sonic Cinema Patreon. Uh, it is on patreon.com. You just type in Sonic Cinema and you'll find me. Uh, those of you who pledge at the $3 and up level, uh, the first reward for that has already been posted is a bit of audio outtakes from my first interview with uh, Princeton Holt and Brian Ack Ackley when we were talking about their film Alienated. And uh, it's a really fun 17 minutes of audio where we're talking about blockbusters, we're talking about blockbuster movies and the way that's changed over the years. And we're talking about Batman and Superman and Star Wars and all that. And it was a really fun uh, discussion that I've wanted to uh, share for a while. So that's going to be, that is available for patrons at the $3 more level. Uh, if you can't go that high, that's perfectly fine. Uh, the $1 level will uh, still get you put on the Sonic Cinema mailing list, which and hopefully uh, down the road we're going to have some more uh, bonuses for people who even just are pledging a dollar. I do promise to make it worth your while. With all that being out of the way, uh, I am ready to uh, get started, and we are going to bring on a uh, filmmaker who is joining the podcast for the third time. Uh, Chris Esper, the first time we discussed his work. The second time, last year, we discussed Martin Scorsese's Faith Trilogy, uh, Last Temptation of Christ, Kundun, and Silence. And this year, we are doing the same thing with another filmmaker, a uh, filmmaker that is near and dear to our hearts, the Russian director Andrei Tarkovsky. And uh, I hope you enjoy that conversation. I'm really looking forward to it. And I've got a lot more great ideas and uh, for episodes this coming year, and I hope you join us with that. Okay, joining me now is uh, Chris Esper, a uh, filmmaker who you've already heard a couple of times on the podcast uh, over the past couple of years. This time we're uh, doing another uh deep discussion into a filmmaker that we both greatly admire, the Russian director Andrei Tarkovsky. Uh, Chris, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me again, Brian. It's always a pleasure to talk with you about, about film, uh, as always. Before we get to the topic at hand of discussing Andrei Tarkovsky, I first wanted to congratulate you for the success that you've had on the film festival circuit as far as awards received and uh, pre presentations of your work for uh, the short films you were part of in 2017. The films that you've been a part of, the Deja Vuers, Undatement Center, and... Uh, yeah, thank you. Mm, yeah, thank you very much. Um, it's, been, it's been fun to see how, you, how, how well those, uh, all those films, which I really admired, all three of them, uh, right. We're well received over the past year. It's been it's been great to see. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's uh, honestly been kind of a shock for me how some of them have been as received as well received as they have been. Particularly uh, with the Deja Vuers being such a uh, very odd story and very odd idea, but to see it do as well as it did, yeah, it was, it's it's been incredible. So um, 
the the first place I guess the the best place uh, to start I guess this discussion because it is a big discussion. I mean, we're basically instead of just three specific points of a director's career like we did with Scorsese, we're basically right. uh, talking about the breadth of a uh, career with Tarkovsky. And I was just uh, kind of interested to go ahead and start off uh, and ask you what what your introduction to Tarkovsky was. Well, it's very funny how my introduction to, uh, to Tartovsky was uh, because I was in high school and at the time I was studying, um, I was doing a mentorship uh, in puppetry in marionettes in particular. And the, the, pe- the folks that were teaching me about marionettes, they were also, uh, you know, they were, they were French and um, had a great love for cinema, for cinema of, of of international you know foreign countries and so and so they were moving back to france at the end of my mentorship um and they gave me a lot of things on the way out a couple of books and you know a couple other things and one of the things that they gave me were tapes tapes of great foreign movies um all of which i've never seen or never heard of and i was still a very young teenager and i still was trying to, I suppose, gain more knowledge about cinema other than just American cinema. Uh, and, you know, at that point, I was already very big uh, Scorsese fan, but I wanted to broaden my horizons in terms of my knowledge of cinema. And so they had all these tapes of all these uh, great movies, and, uh, and, and a few of them in the pile included films by Kurosawa, by Tarzowski, uh, by uh, uh, Fellini, I think, was in the pile as well, Truffaut. Uh, Godard, uh, I think everybody was in there, <laughs> all the greats, and uh, and then I see this VHS cover for Stalker, and it was this really beautiful cover. It was this really beautiful cover with two tapes, and I was like, "What is this movie?" And so I think it was actually the first one I watched out of all the films in the pile, and so I watched it on tape, and I was just so entranced by it. I was so entranced by its visuals, and I was only 17 years old at the time, and I don't think I really even understood what the film was about. I understood it on on the surface level what the film was about, but as I'm watching the images, I'm like, I'm like, this is one of the most beautiful looking movies I've ever seen. And then, and then another tape in the pile was also Nostalgia, which I watched a little bit of that one, not a lot. I liked Stalker a little bit more at the time, I think, and then. I think one of his other first films was in there. So I kind of got introduced to Tarzowski by accident that way. I'm just looking at the beautiful images. And it was clear to me that he is, he is, is, or and was, I should say, a visual poet without question. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's interesting that, and I guess we'll go ahead and jump into it. And it kind of makes sense because uh stalker was recently released, uh, through the Criterion Collection, was finally added to the Criterion Collection, which I've been hoping right. it was for, yeah. would be for a long time, because uh, like you, it was actually my favorite, my first introduction to Tarkovsky as well. Uh, my introduction, and I remember the videotape that you, you're, you're talking about. In fact, I think I still have my original oh. videotape. <laughs> uh, the, two, the two tapes with that really striking image of uh, the stalker's head with yes. green and all that stuff. Yes. Yeah. That's the it's one. Yep. Absolutely 
yeah, I mean that was that was my uh, I I I remember that cover vividly. Um, yes. Because after I the way so the way I came to Tarkovsky was um, it was very different from you. I a few years before it was 1994. I had absolutely fallen in love with Alex Preuss's The Crow uh, when I yes. first saw it, and in a review of The Crow when it came out on video, they talked about all Brandon Lee's films, but obviously The Crow was the big one, and the reviewer, I think it was Ken Tucker, was somebody at Entertainment Weekly, had mentioned in the in talking about the scenes where... Uh, Eric Draven is going through the alleyways and going up the uh, the the hallways and stuff like that of his apartment building. And the the reviewer mentioned that those scenes remind him of Tarkovsky's Stalker, and ah. that reference always fascinated with me, and it stuck in my head because I loved that movie for long immediately, and it. Shortly became my favorite movie of all time. It was where it was for a long time, but sure. that image, but that that reference to Stalker stuck with me. So sure. I I tried to find that movie. I tried to find that movie in 1997. I was I went to a local video store. wasn't Blockbuster or anything like that. It was a smaller chain, and uh, I looked, and they actually had Stalker there. And so I'm like, I was really excited. Finally got to see it, and I took it home and watched it almost immediately. And I don't think I loved it as much as I do now when I first saw it. But like you, I was just transfixed by it. It was just... I I think it was probably my first foreign film I'd seen. Really? So the fact that I had... And so the fact that I had gotten this type of vibe, this type of um, intense reaction to Stalker was quite amazing, actually. And yes. it And it wasn't long after that. I eventually, later in the, the summer, I had... Uh, I found I found it available on videotape to purchase through uh, Media Play, which no longer exists. Oh. And yeah. so, and after that, I they had a few other Tarkovsky films there at the video store. They had Solaris there. They had My Name Is Yvonne, better known as Yvonne's Childhood, and right. I watched as well. And they also had Andre Rublev, which I started to watch but had a hard time getting into. So I, I did too, I actually. Finished, yeah. So I don't think I finished it at that point. When I got back into Tarkovsky because of uh, the availability on Netflix, and I basically started watching all of his films that I'd missed earlier, I went back to Andre Rublev, which was the Criterion disc, which actually uh, brought back a lot of the subtitles that had been missing from the original, from the video cut, which was three hours. And this one includes the 20, minute, 20 minutes extra and was the original cut that Tarkovsky made of Rublev. And uh, I got okay. even more transfixed to that movie. And it's, and all of, I, I absolutely am a great admirer of all of Tarkovsky's movies. Um, Stalker, those always have particularly special place because of, partially because of the fact that it was 
my first one, and partially because of the me fact too. that it just had such a pull on me when I first saw oh, it. Me too, absolutely. And I mean, when I, when I went back to watch uh, Stalker for this podcast, I was writing down all I was writing down notes for pretty much every Tarkovsky movie, just things that point out that stuck out with me and uh, about the films. And Stalker had one of the longest lists of notes that I made of the films that Tarkovsky made. I mean, it, it's a movie that sticks it that's stuck with me for all time and I can and it's funny that um a uh, really great friend of mine who loves foreign films that watches foreign films uh he he loves Solaris and Mirror but when he borrowed Stalker from me he couldn't get into it and wow. it's kind of interesting and but the thing is I kind of understand where that is coming from because more than most of his other films Stalker requires a tremendous amount of patience on the part of the viewer. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, that's and so it's kind of amazing to me that that lat that that movie really latched on to me as much as it did and really inhabited my memories and has really stuck with me the way it has. Yeah, you, you know, I found the same myself when I was watching Stalker in prepar- in preparation for this, and I. Actually, got the Criterion recently for a Christmas gift. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, wa- I'm watching it, and um, I hadn't seen it probably uh, in a couple of years. Um, probably, I think probably in a long, long time. So I didn't remember a lot of it. Uh, I just remember sections of it. But when those sections came on screen, I was immediately, you know, I was immediately transfixed as I once was the first time I saw it. It just, it just grabs you. It's a very uh, very meditative movie, I find. Yeah. Ab- oh, absolutely. And uh, as somebody who's who is who was a music major, who came to who has who music is a huge part. Music and sound has always been a huge part of what resonates with me when it comes to films. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the things that always has struck me about Stalker is the use of electronic music and sound design. Yes. For me as an artist, for me as a composer, it's next to 2001 A Space Odyssey, it's probably one of the most influential movies in terms of the type of music that I do, the type of music that I've written over the years. And actually a few, and actually I think it was around the same time that I started really getting into, uh, Tarkovsky's work again in 2002 and after Stalker had been finally become available on DVD in the States I actually wrote a uh, it hasn't been released yet because I haven't been uh, completely recorded yet but I wrote a piece for trombone quartet and electronics inspired by Stalker and uh, you know it's just a little four minute piece and stuff like that but it was that was the influence that Tarkovsky's film had on me. I mean, right. now there are so many other film. I mean, kind of all of his films have that effect on me, but few quite on the same level as Stalker. Yeah, that's that's how I feel as well. I I, I do have a copy of Nostalgia, and also uh, Andre uh, uh, Andre. Uh, I always get the title wrong. <laughs> Andre uh, uh, Andre uh, Rimbaud. 
Uh, and, you know, like you, I didn't get all that into it as well. Stalker, I always kept coming back to, no matter how many times I watched Transoski, that's the one I always came back to. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's just, there's something about the way that uh, Tarkovsky builds that world, and it's just so, it's so striking. It's such a simple story. The story it really is. is is just a guide leading a writer and a professor into a forbidden zone in this unnamed country. That, yes. And it was... Originally, it was originally adapted from a uh, novel, Roadside Picnic. And yep. how much how much of uh, the making of Stalker do you know? I don't know a whole lot, to be honest with you. I did a little bit of research like on IMDb uh, prior, prior to this, but I don't know a whole lot, to be honest with you. Okay, I, I need to uh, give you a uh, link to follow. Um, it's a uh, nostalgia.com. It's an appreciation page I found several years ago on Tarkovsky. And there's an article about the making of Stalker that is just absolutely remarkable. If you're a fan of Stalker, this is absolutely essential reading. But basically, oh, awesome. but basically, Tarkovsky basically had to make the movie twice. He started off with a more direct adaptation of Roadside Picnic, which I've never read. But what happened with one cinematographer, but what happened is, and there's dispute as to whether it was sabotage on the part of the processing company who was processing the film or not, but basically, right. every part of the uh, the film, most of the film that had been shot up until a certain point, was unusable because oh, wow. they hadn't processed it correctly. Oh, and so he had to. So the film that, as it exists now, had to go in with less budget, less money, and completely different cinematographer. And it basically had to be re it basically had to be reimagined. And oh, it geez. is absolutely and it was his last film in Russia. Uh the last oh. two films he had been made the last two films he made, he made Nostalgia in Italy and he made The Sacrifice, uh, which was his last film in Sweden right. with mm -hmm. uh, a lot of Bergman's um mm -hmm. crew and Erlen Josephson, who was the uh, who is an actor for uh, La Bergman films, and so right. So Stalker was basically he basically made the movie. I don't know if it was exactly twice, but he they gotten far enough into production that it feels like I think the movie basically was done twice, but because of this freak accident on the part of the. Uh, lab that was processing the film everything was basically unusable and there's dispute as to whether it was sabotage on the part of uh, the Russian government who didn't really care for Tarkovsky and pretty much most of the films that he had made in Russia certainly Ivan's childhood and Andrei Rublev had been cut over the uh, years um, 
And there have been several different cuts of both of those movies released. Although the ones on the it's weird because the one on Criterion for Vaughn's childhood is basically sort of the definitive cut, but the one that for Rublev, which is the longer cut, which was the original cut, Tarkovsky actually uh, endorsed the shorter cut, which was oh. right around three hours as opposed to three and a half hours for uh, Rublev. So oh. it's really it's really interesting to see how much what all how much uh, cutting and one of the things that's interesting about Tarkovsky is while he was a filmmaker in Soviet Russia he was very much not a Russian filmmaker in the same way that you consider Eisenstein a Russian filmmaker in terms of somebody who you know has who who was basically just an extension of the uh, Russian uh, government right and yeah. uh, it's it's the profound spirituality that runs through all of Tarkovsky's work um, that is absolutely fascinating and even more fascinating uh, for Stalker and one of the key points that this uh, article about Stalker uh, brings up is the fact that Tarkovsky made Stalker seven years before the Chernobyl disaster. But if you think about what happened at Chernobyl and you look back at certain things and certain beats in the production design, certain beats in the dialogue with uh, what happens in the room, mm -hmm. like they talk about the, they, you kind of get the impression that the stalker is almost prescient when it comes to the Chernobyl disaster. Because right. it's a zone that came up out of nowhere, you know, maybe it was meteors, but the government is keeping people out of it. Right. And so, and one of the things that the professor mentions at the end of the movie, after they've uh, gotten to the room, is something about the fourth bunker, and it was the fourth bunker at Chernobyl that exploded that caused that disaster. So the fact that he made this movie seven years before Chernobyl, and the movie feels almost like a response to it, is absolutely amazing. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, one of the saddest things uh, that I've learned over the years uh, about Stalker is the fact that one of the things... Uh, one of the tragic things about the shoe is that basically there were they were not far they were shooting not far from a uh, chemical plant and there was oh, a lot yeah. of chemicals in the water and so mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the actors and uh, people involved with the production including Tarkovsky himself later died with um uh, forms of cancer and respiratory issues that a lot of people attribute to the uh, shooting of Stalker. Uh, oh, yeah, the yeah, from the story. contamination. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's, it's, there are so many fascinating things about uh, Stalker. I mean, this isn't, this isn't even just like all of the things I'm talking about isn't even really representative of the context of the film necessarily. It's just, 
sure. talking about things that have happened that have come up in response to the film. Um, right, right. One of the amazing things, uh, one of the things that I like about uh, Stalker, and one of the things that Tarkovsky was always great about was his use of color versus black and white, or in the case of Stalker, sepia tone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the fact that sepia tone in this movie represents the real world, and the zone is in this lush, uh, really haunting uh, color cinematography is just absolutely. Uh, it's it's such an inspired touch because normally because another filmmaker would reverse it, and it's not necessarily going to have the same effect. And absolutely, yeah. That that was one of the things I remember when I first saw the movie that really fascinated me was the switch from sepia tone to uh, color. Immediately, as a young teenager, the first thing I thought of was was Oz. Of course, you know it's not like it was Oz uh, in any way, but uh, but it, it had that same sort of magic, I guess you could say, because I agree, it is very haunting and very lush. Uh, and you know, then and you go into the reality. It's very, you know, dirty. It's very, you know, has a not not so beautiful brown. You know, so it was, it was very haunting. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and and one of the things that I noticed in uh, watching it before this podcast was, it for me, it it feels like the the stalker. Even though there's a writer, even though there's a professor in the film, um, I feel like the stalkers. Tarkovsky's representation of an artist and he is only a piece in the world that when he is leading people into the zone and mm-hmm. just as an artist is really he, he finds his greatest piece creating art uh the 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 stalker is only a piece when he's doing his what he sees as his purpose mm. and, that's a yeah <laughs> And one of the one of the questions that um, one of the questions that came up for me uh, in the film this past time is you you kind of wonder whether and I think one of the filmmaker and I think one of the uh, characters in the movie uh, brings this possibility up is there's a question of whether the stalker is sort of a con man who's just making up these rules for the writer and the professor to uh, follow when they're in the zone. You know, it's like, oh, only follow this direction, only follow this direction. You know, if you have to go this certain way, you can't go back the same way you could. Right. And, uh, you know... Or does he have real faith when it comes to his purpose in life and what the zone can bring to people's lives? Right. And uh, one of the and and one of the things that because this is you know it's a long movie it's two hours forty minutes. Uh, sure. And uh, one of the things that I I like one of the last things that I wrote down about Stalker and but and one of the things that really kind of hits home for me. Is uh, that it, it? It feels like a representation of the adage that it's not the destination, but it's the journey that matters. Because yeah. really, the when you get when they get to the room, it's kind of an anticlimax. Right. It's the destination. It's the journey to get to the room that's 
the real drama, the real satisfaction of the movie. Once they get to the room, it it's kind of mundane in a way. Yeah. Yep. Because <laughs> I mean, you know, they nobody actually goes into the room. They just go to the end to where the to end. The end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we see them uh, back at the bar that they all met at at the beginning. Right. What one of the thing, and I I. I will admit, like, I, I personally, unfortunately, I haven't been able to get the Criterion myself. I really want to because I want to see the movie in Blu-ray. I want to see it restored. I I can't imagine it not looking absolutely stunning. Uh, oh, yeah, it is. The work that Criterion does. And it's also interesting because I've never actually seen the movie without having to switch a disc or switch a tape halfway in, in the <laughs> So it's like, that's kind of another incentive to get the criterion. Of course, of yeah. It's like, I won't, I can just watch it straight through now. Yeah, that's um, right. <laughs> what, what, uh, what sort of thoughts did uh, cross your mind when uh, you were watching uh, Stalker again recently? So I haven't watched it again recently. Right off, right off the bat, the one thing again, I I have to point out, and this is, and this is hallmark in Tarzowski's work, is his cinematography, his use of of long tracking shots and long takes are just, and that's probably one of my favorite things about his work is just how beautiful that aspect is in yeah. an age where in an age where uh, everything is is very fast cuts and everything is very quick, particularly in, you know, big budget blockbusters these days. Um, it was so refreshing to see a film just breathe. Yeah. Um, and I can't imagine, I can't imagine a film like this having so many fast cuts because it, it, this film is so meditative and it's just so beautiful that it would be a disservice to the story. Uh, because as you said, the film in the end for me, I agree is about the journey of, finding something rather than the end result. And so I feel as though by, by getting these long takes in this world that he's creating, that in a way we're living with the characters in that world, with the music and with the very natural sound effects. Uh, and again, and the, and the use of uh, very little dialogue for a good chunk of it, you know, it, uh, it was beautiful to just listen to. I could, uh, this is a movie that I could put on, I could, I could, you know, uh, not see the visuals and just listen to. It was, it's gorgeous. Yeah. You know, um, but thematically, uh, thematically, one of the things I found was uh, the same as I think you just pointed out was, you know, the journey of it all. And I found for me, when I first watched as a 17 year old versus how I watched now as a 28 year old uh, male, I see it now in a totally different way. As I got older, I see more. Uh, philosophical type of messages going on around here, mm-hmm. uh, which is which is clear what he was going for, and so I learned to appreciate it more on that level uh, myself. Yeah, and you you brought the uh, the amount of long takes in the film, and I think was it was I think it was IMDb where I saw that there really were not there really are not a lot of edits in this film no. from one take to another. And when I saw the amount, I, I, I started, I, I couldn't believe it, but at the same point, I could believe it because of the fact that I had seen the movie so much 
I know how it after a certain point you don't notice the fact that it's not edit it's not cutting like right. even even the scene which is arguably the most which is the most what most uh moviegoers would probably consider the most exciting scene which is when uh they're trying to sneak into the zone and uh you have the soldiers going after them and all of the sound effects associated with that there's not an edit in that scene there's not no and but you know if somebody if a lesser director got their hands on that scene there'd be an edit every three seconds absolutely yep but the thing is you don't need it because of the way he stages it it's just so amazing and you understand it's it's the momentum of that scene that takes you it doesn't matter how much editing you do. It's right. It's just it's the momentum of that. And yeah, there. Yeah, the fact that he is very deliberate, he's very specific when it comes to his editing. And I mean, it's not just Stalkers. Every movie of his. Every it's movie, right? Like that as well. And uh, it's it's just it's just amazing that and. I mean that's that's part of the reason I mentioned two thousand one earlier when it came to the music and the sound design. I mean, to me, this has always been a. I mean, we we can talk about Solaris a little bit, but uh, and Solaris was has always been kind of considered his uh, response to two thousand one. But I think Stalker has more in common with uh, two thousand one, at least from a filmmaking standpoint, than Solaris does. Right. Right. Oh, no, I was just going to say that I, I definitely agree with that. Uh, Solaris, admittedly, I've only seen once. I barely, I barely remember it at all. But I mean, uh, but I definitely see the 2001 uh, reference uh, here. Yeah. I, 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 for sure. And so I, I'm actually, I actually have Stalker on my television right now, kind of like looking back at some of the images, <laughs> uh, you know, as we're talking about it, because uh and you know it. Uh, there is something very 2001 esque about it, uh, for sure. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I, I've I've only seen. Let's see, I've only seen Solaris. I did watch it again recently uh, to write down some notes, and it's funny because of the fact that it's arguably Tarkovsky's most accessible feature. Um, even though it's like Stalker's two hours and forty minutes long. Uh, it's arguably his most accessible feature in terms of the narrative. But the funny right. thing is, it's like I was watching it recently. I had a hard time keeping interested in it. I, I just, I had a very difficult time keeping interested in it. And it was really weird because of the fact that it's like it has this reputation. And I can see that it's his that from a structural standpoint, it's one of his most successful films. I mean, it was remade uh, about 15 years ago by Soderbergh and uh, James Cameron. Right, uh, right, right. George Clooney. But, um, yeah, I I just, I, it was, for some reason, it just didn't really have the hold on me that some of Tarkovsky's other films do. And I don't yes. necessarily think it's because of the fact that it's one of his more accessible films. I just, it, it might be because of the fact that that story and the way that Tarkovsky tells that story just doesn't, 
I mean, I still think it's a very good movie. It's a beautiful movie to watch, like all mm-hmm. these movies. But at the same time, I have a hard time giving myself over to it the way I do uh, Stalker. Right. But I mean, there's there's a to to discuss Solaris a little bit. I mean, you again, you have uh, not necessarily with when it comes to uh, black and white and color, but you have the use of filters that. Tarkovsky uses uh, when it comes to the cinematography of the music of uh, Solaris. You you've got uh, a lot of sequences with uh, very few cuts that are you that where the action just basically is allowed to just go on about its business and uh, just seeing the film uh, progress seeing different scenes play out as they will. And I think that might be part of the reason that um, Solaris doesn't really work for me is because, and uh, so the same type of style that uh, Stalker had doesn't necessarily lend itself to a uh, more conventional narrative like Solaris. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I definitely see what you're saying. Um, I'm actually watching a few clips of Solaris right now uh, uh, from YouTube. And um, right off the bat, I see exactly the, the points you're making, uh, particularly about the color. It's so luscious and so beautiful. And the use of filters, it's yeah, it's a gorgeous-looking movie from what I'm looking at so far. Yeah, I, I just, I yeah, it's just very weird that Solaris is the movie that just, I don't know, it, in a way, it's kind of my least favorite Tarkovsky. I mean, I again, I like all of them, but it it just doesn't resonate with me. I think the way it probably should, especially with his personal, especially with the uh, type of story that has. Um, right. Which is a very personal story and a very, uh, emo- supposed to be a very emotional story. I don't necessarily feel those emotions coming out the way uh, they do in other uh, Tarkovsky's films, like Stalker and uh, Yvonne's Childhood. No, no, I, uh, no I, I see what you're saying, yeah. Uh, I have to see it again to really, uh, because it's been years since I've seen it. Uh, I had a hard time of uh, hunting it down. But uh, the 2002 movie, just out of curiosity, how, uh, how does that compare with uh, Tarkovsky's version? It's, well, I mean, for one thing, it's shorter. It's shorter by about an hour, uh, right. which is not surprising. It's a Hollywood film. Uh, and it's funny because of the fact that uh, I mean, I, I remember that movie. I It's been years since I've seen the Soberg film. I know at the time, I I thought um, Tarkovsky's film was better. I I would be curious to see them both sort of like back-to-back now to see which version yeah. of the uh, story that I like. I know there are uh, differences in what Soderbergh emphasized and his telling of the story versus what Tarkovsky did. Um, mm-hmm. It was funny because of the fact that I, one of the things I remember about Solaris, because we had at the movie theater and people hated that movie. Like they oh, could not geez. stand it. Uh, they, they, they were expecting something else because it was George Clooney. And uh, they were, I think they were expecting something more conventional. And, mm-hmm. uh, it's funny, my mother and I went to go see it together. I liked it, she didn't. Uh, and it's funny oh. because of the fact that um, I I was 
in I was getting ready to go to bed and uh, I went outside out to the living room and she was watch she was actually watching the Tarkovsky version on Turner Classic Movies. And Uh-oh. one of the thing and I don't think she ended up seeing the entire thing, but one of the things that she said, which really kind of blew my mind because I couldn't imagine Tarkovsky resonating with her at all, was the fact that she really liked what he had done with the story better than Soderbergh. Interesting. kind of blew my mind, the fact that she would say that. It's <laughs> like, I never expected, I could never see her watching, I, I could never see her having that reaction to, like, Stalker, or really any sure. other, any of his other movies. And a big part of that is because of how long they are, and how deliberately paced they are. Yes. So I mean that was that was always really interesting. But yeah, I, I do I wanted to watch the Soderbergh film in addition to this, but I never really got to it. But I do want to go back and rewatch the uh Soderbergh film and then kind of rewatch the Tarkovsky film and see how I feel about it diff- in terms of which one I like better. Sure. So we've talked about Tarkovsky's uh two science fiction entries, uh, Stalker and Solaris. I'm sure we'll bring them up again. Because really, if you think about a lot of, from a visual and uh, thematic standpoint, there's a lot of connective tissue to be made, not just between Stalker and Solaris, but also between the rest of Tarkovsky's films. Uh, But the film that I want to transition to next is one that I think you'll really enjoy. It is uh, actually his diploma film that came out on DVD. I think 2002 it came out. It's the uh, Steamroller and the Violin. Have you ever had a chance to see that? Mm, I know. I've never seen that one. I think you would really like it. It is... <coughs> it's about 40 minutes long. It's not... Wow. Uh, so it's not a feature film. It's it's a shorter film. Sure. It was never re- released theatrically by no... Uh, I think uh, Kino eventually did release it on a DVD, I think in 2002, 2003. Uh-huh. But uh, it's it's basically about a young boy who plays the violin, who uh, becomes friends with a guy in his 20s who drives a steamroller. And it's basically about an afternoon that they spend together. And it's it's a very simple story. It's it's the closest thing to a conventional narrative that Tarkovsky ever made. Oh. And uh, basically the way that they uh, the these two connect is uh, some of the uh, classmates for the kid are bullying him. And the steamroller, the guy who drives the steamroller comes to his aid. And so it's it's a very simple story. It's 40 minutes. It's even an entertaining story. It's the closest thing to a genuinely sort of quote-unquote generic uh, entertaining movie that uh, Tarkovsky ever made. And it's funny to look at in the context of the rest of his work and realize just how radically different it is from everything else. Um, Right. There's not really much more... There's not really much to say about it. It's very straightforward. It's very... Conventional, but it's very fun. Uh, I think it. I it's not available on Netflix streaming, but if you still do the disc uh, 
rental. I'm sure you can probably find it somewhere, maybe even on YouTube. Uh, right. To find uh, the steamroller and the violin is really is really an entertaining movie, and based on uh, the films that you've made over the years that I've seen, I think you would enjoy it. Oh yeah, I love to check it out. Yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah. I, I, there's there's a few from his uh, early filmography I have to check out, including including Iron Child. I haven't seen that one either. Well, like I said, that was that was actually one of the first ones that I had seen uh, when I first started again to Tarkovsky's work in '97. But I saw it under the title "My Name Is Ivan." Oh, ah, okay. Uh, it was a uh, but the Criterion release the Criterion Collection has released that as well under the title "Ivan's Childhood," which is the original film and uh, which is the original title, and it's basically. So Yvonne's childhood is basically the story of a boy who has lost his uh, family in war. I believe it's World War II. And uh, he finds himself, he basically finds himself under the care of the Russian army. And mm-hmm. uh, he he's basically, he is played by uh, Nikolai uh, Berliev, who uh, also played the bellmaker at the end of Andrei Rublev. Oh. Uh, years later. And uh, the characters he plays in Ivan's childhood and Rublev are very strong, very similar. They're both headstrong, they're both arrogant, and they don't suffer authority that thinks it knows better than him. Uh, he basically, he, he basically, you know, we, we can talk about Rublev at greater length, but like basically, uh, Ivan makes himself sort of indispensable to the uh, Russian army in Ivan's childhood, but it's it's a very stark look at a childhood that is interrupted by war. And watching it, uh, watching it, and taking notes, it one of the things that struck me, and I haven't seen this movie in forever, and I need to see it again. It made I wondered if Steven Spielberg had this film in mind, Yvonne's childhood in mind, when he made Empire of the Sun. Because oh. there's a lot of in terms of the personalities of Christian Bale's character in Empire of the Sun with Yvonne, uh, there's a lot of similarity in their personalities that I think you you could almost make the argument that uh I mean, I know Empire of the Sun is based on a book by uh, J.G. Ballard, but at the same time, I can see a lot of similarities between the two protagonists, and it was really interesting right. to think about that. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, definitely, I I would definitely recommend Yvonne's Childhood. That's a movie, sort of the opposite of Solaris. My opinion of Yvonne's Childhood has actually increased over the years. It's I don't know if I would put quite up with my favorite films of Tarkovsky's, but it's definitely one that I admire now more now than uh, than I than I did when I first saw it. Yeah, yeah, I noticed too. It's also one of the shorter ones at, at at just an hour and a half. Yeah, yeah, it's like yeah, it it is with the exception of Steamroller and the Violin, it is his shortest film. It's like nine right. minutes. Uh, and one of the, but I wouldn't say, I wouldn't put it in the same way, uh, of Solaris and that it's a conventional story. It's a right. conventional story because one of the things that, uh, 
intrigues one of the intriguing things about uh, Tarkovsky is his use of what he called poetic linkages, which yes. he used to enhance the emotional impact of the film. And Yvonne Childhood has quite a few of these, and they can come in flashbacks with uh, Yvonne and his mother. It can come in the form of a scene of an unrelated scene between two members of the Russian army. And mm -hmm. it's basically stuff that enhances the emotional uh, power of the film without dulling the realities of the story that uh, Tarkovsky is telling. Right. And uh, the, have you ever read, have you read Tarkovsky's book? Sculpting in Time? Um, no, I, I didn't know he wrote a book. <laughs> yes, he, he, he yeah. wrote a book in the 80s. I know it was finished... I know it was uh, finished up right... At, he was working on The Sacrifice at the time he wrote it. It's, it's a fascinating book, but like his films, it is... It is a very uh, methodical and can be sometimes difficult read. Uh, it requires a lot of patience on the part of the of the reader to oh, read, it, right. read, but it's it's definitely worth it if you can, uh, because he, the way he writes about film is very dense and very if if you know if you're familiar with his films at all, uh, it makes all the sense in the world because his his whole view on cinema is laid bare in uh, Sculpting in Time. And it's a fascinating read if you're uh, familiar with uh, Tarkovsky. But uh, it's definitely, it can definitely be a chore. But it's it's well worth it. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking right now for copies on Amazon. It's going for as high as $112. Oh, wow. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> <No>, yeah. <laughs> Wow, yeah, I it was it was cheaper when I bought it uh, a yeah. lot of years ago, uh, but yeah, it's it's uh, I don't know maybe eBay you might be able to find some. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's you know it's not something you're necessarily going to find at uh, Barnes and Noble or anything like that. Right. But, of course. Uh, yeah. It's it's definitely uh, it's it's definitely fascinating to read if you're a uh, fan of Tarkovsky. And, That's uh, especially, uh, especially if you're an admirer of his work, even if you don't. I mean, I, I, I love film. I love Tarkovsky as a filmmaker. He's one of my favorite filmmakers of all time. Yeah, and uh, it's even if it's it's especially if it, you kind of have to love Tarkovsky to really. Uh, commit to reading that book, but if you, right. if you do, I and uh, if you want some insight into uh, one of the most uncompromising film artists of uh, all time, it's definitely worth a read. Uh, that's that's great. So, uh, so so he writes about cinema. He writes about um, uh, his uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, writes about uh, uh, his work. Is that what the book is about? Yeah. He he goes through each. You see him. You see him talk about each film. He does. He does spend a lot of time and uh, and about his philosophy on filmmaking. And oh. uh, it's it's really like it's it's one of the most nakedly personal but 
personal books uh, you could ever imagine of mm-hmm. reading writing. It's it's mm-hmm. absolutely fascinating, and it's it's really great insight into uh, the director that you just never will have expected. I mean, I like I was like you. I didn't necessarily know that he had written for a while. I don't remember when I eventually got the book, but uh, yeah. I, I was like, wow, he were I think I think it might have been mentioned I think it was mentioned in the uh in one of the essays they had in the criterion of Yvonne's childhood. Uh the author oh, okay. some of the authors might mention it. That's where I'm like, he wrote a book? And yeah. so I I, yeah. I had to get it. I'm like, okay, this is it was it took me a while to read it, but it was definitely well worth reading. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking for it on eBay right now. And, and another book, which I was just reminded of as I was browsing on eBay, that I've been meaning to get, but I kept forgetting to, to purchase or look at it, is a book of all his Polaroids that he took. Um, uh, it's, it's called Instant Light, Tarzowski's Polaroids, and it's all, all, the, all the photographs that he took. Oh, wow. Wow. That's, that would be... Yeah, that would be uh, that would be fascinating to uh, watch as well. To that would be fascinating to look at as well. To read, yeah, look at, yeah. Um, yeah, and I mean, one thing that we haven't mentioned yet that you know is kind of important to uh, to uh, who Tarkovsky is is his father was a uh, renowned poet. Um, oh. And, you, and he. He quotes uh, his father's poetry in um, in Stalker. Uh, one of the yes, uh, his 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 poetry is uh, quote in Stalker, and uh, the other film, and it's also mentioned in uh, Nostalgia as well. And uh, in the early parts of Nostalgia, I think uh, one of the uh, characters, I think it's the, I think it's the. Uh, the writer, the main character, uh, mentions uh, Arsenev Tarkovsky's uh, poetry. Oh yeah, yeah. I I remember seeing the opening credits recently. I'm stuck. I I had no idea that was his father. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Very fascinating. So uh, we so we so I brought um brought nostalgia and so that's probably the next uh, logical place to go like i said it was earlier it was made in italy it was his first film after uh stalker and was released in uh 83 um it nostalgia is an interesting film i've always really it's it's kind of always been for me sort of the uh dividing point between the the films of Tarkovsky's that I love versus the films of Tarkovsky's that I more admire than really love. Uh, right. It's sort of been behind in that sort of uh, it's always sort of been that uh, fulcrum point. Uh, for the most part, I do love it though. It's a fascinating. Uh, it's a it's an interesting film. It's uh, it's about a writer who is. Uh, going to who is in Italy to do research on a uh on a Russian composer and he you you don't see that so much uh you see you see him go through some of the motions but it a lot of the uh thematic uh 
material, and it's one of the reasons why I think that Tarkov it's probably one of Tarkovsky's uh, most personal films is because of the fact that it it feels like a reflection of what his mood probably would have been like uh, being outside of Russia, because he was. I don't know why. I don't know he. I don't know why he necessarily left Russia. I know he can necessarily after Stalker, he probably just couldn't really uh, get films made in Russia anymore, so he had to go yeah. uh, elsewhere. But um, the last two films, so the last two films he made, uh, Nostalgia and The Sacrifice, were made outside of Russia, and uh, Nostalgia, you really get the impression that. Uh, Tarkovsky is uh, laying bare his emotions about being outside of Russia for mm-hmm. uh, what would end up being the end of his life. And I, you, you mentioned that was one of the uh, films that uh, they gave you. Uh, That's right. Yep. And uh, yep. what? How? How do you feel about the movie? Uh, I've only seen it maybe twice. I remember twice, and the two times I saw it, it was a hard film for me to get through because. Um, how meditative it was, uh, and uh, you know how personal it was, and I, I can't really say it. I understood all of it, but uh, visually, I truly appreciated it. Uh, I love the fact that the opening shot, for example, where you see the car, we see a car come in, and he doesn't even follow the car. He he follows the car for like maybe a couple of feet, and then he holds the shot there. You're like, okay, what, what what's going on here? And and the car pulls right up. It's like. I, I, there again, demonstrating the same use of long takes. Uh, uh, as he, and visually, it, look, it reminds me a lot of Stalker. Uh, the color, a lot of the color scenes, um, very beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I remember. I remember also this one haunting shot of seeing the leading character, uh, the writer actually, I believe it was. Yeah. Uh, carrying carrying a candle, and Tarzowski mm-hmm. follows him. For a good long period of time, uh, you don't see where he's going, and when he reaches, and then when he reaches with the candle uh, to where he was at, and like, and there's one point in the shot where he's obscured by by mist and by and by dust in the air. You can't even see it. Uh, and I remember thinking how daring that was, the filmmaker, to present these images and not have and not give the audience a clear vision as to where we are the ge- and the geography, but purposefully. Uh, and I, it was a real breath of fresh air to see that as an aspiring filmmaker. Mm-hmm. You're talking about the end of the film, right? I believe so. Yes. Where yes. he where he's in the uh, pool and uh, Erland uh, Josephson, who's in this movie as well, um, as well as the sacrifice. Uh, he's he's told the writer um, Erland jo- Josephson's character in this movie is really interesting. Eh? It's it's kind of a uh, it's kind of the same character he ends up playing in the sacrifice, which was Tarkovsky's last film, and uh, right. both both men are paranoid of the world, but they have a faith that is singular, and that it's hard to explain, and uh, there's there's I think there's definitely a lot of uh, Tarkovsky in this uh, character type as well, but Erlen Josephson's character. Uh, the writer becomes fascinated by him. He sees him at this uh, at this uh, pool in the middle of town, and he's basically known as the crazy person around the town. 
and uh, he's got that reputation. But the the writer, who's the main character, just becomes fascinated by him, and so uh, he he gets to talking. He goes visit this visits this man at his house, and uh, the man tells him about this task that he has tried to accomplish. He's never quite finished it though. Which is to go into the uh, pool, this this empty pool, hold a candle, and try to make it from one end of the pool to the other without the candle going out. Oh. And so, uh, at the end, we've already seen, there's a scene where Erlen Josephson's character, and you kind of get the impression that he's very much a... Uh, he he's he's one of these uh, guys who you know in America we would see him and he would be like preaching the end of the world and which right. is not unlike what he is in the sacrifice and yeah. he self immolates himself as a form of protest against the world and so immediately after that and we. And uh, Tarkovsky uses uh, the Ode to Joy by Beethoven to mm-hmm. just amazing effect in that scene. And so the next scene, the final scene of the movie, uh, we see the writer actually in the pool, and he is uh, lighting the candle, and he is trying to get by, get from one end of the pool to the other. There, and he has to stop because of the fact, a couple of times, I think, uh, because of the fact that the candle goes out. So right. after that, he goes back to the beginning, the, the end of the pool, lights the candle again, and keeps going. And, keeps uh, going, right. Yeah, it is. And so the last scene of the movie, the last shot of the movie is he is, and it's funny because of the fact that you you distinctly notice it, and I wonder, you know, whether it was, I. it's curious it, it's a moment that really, I'm sure, something that may not have necessarily been intentional, but there's one moment in the moment in the uh, where he is um, going, uh, he, he does make it all the way. He does eventually make it to the end of the pool. Uh, yeah. And you kind of get the impression that, you, you almost get the impression that the, the writer dies although i don't know if he dies but he he's exhausted by having completed this task it's a very simple task it's holding yeah. a candle from one end of a pool to the other but anyway there's one moment in the the uh sequence when he is when he does make it and that is when he you you see him it's it's the one moment that you see him really cover the candle to where the flame is obscured. Yeah. And uh it's it's the one moment where it's like what you and you you almost it, psychologically speaking you almost look for an invisible cut that may have happened like oh crap it went out. So it went okay, out, right. You cut it and then you just keep going and oh you got keep, yeah. keep it at the same angle and then you go forward but yeah it's it's one moment that's always stuck out with that sequence for me and it's just this and i remember roger ebert talking about that sequence when he reviewed solaris for his uh, great movie series and when he saw the movie for the first time at i think telluride was when uh 
you saw it, and uh, it basically it it's one of those sequences where it's like you either it it's and it's a reflection of Tarkovsky's work in general, where it's like you either love it or you hate it. There really oh, you hate it, right? There really isn't a moment in between because of the fact that you know you just it's it's either going to bore you to tears or it's just going to completely engross you. And uh, that's definitely a reflection on um, Tarkovsky's work in general. I mean, you, it's, it, it, really is, it really is an amazing commitment to, uh, to follow Tarkovsky. And I, I completely get if people are not able to do it because of the fact that it's like there are so many of his, even though I love so many of his movies, it's difficult to get through them. And oh, I agree. It's, it's de- like, and uh, the one movie that came between Solaris and uh, Stalker, uh, which was another one of his shorter films, it's about 100 minutes, uh, but was also another one of his more personal films, was The Mirror. Okay, yeah, I remember that one, yeah. Yeah. Have you seen it? Long time ago, but yes, I have seen it. Yeah. Um, and that is, it's almost a silent film. There's very little dialogue in the movie. And one of the things that I like about, one of the things that's interesting about Tarkovsky is the fact that he doesn't really rely on dialogue. He relies on images. And yes. the images are what matter. And uh, the mirror is full of just beautiful images to watch. I'm, I, and was actually, I, I got excited because of the fact that, uh, when the 2012 Sight and Sound poll uh, came out, uh, the mirror was actually ninth on the director's oh. list. Uh, it was the first time any of Tarkovsky's films uh, had cracked the, either of the, the critics or the uh, director's top ten. And I, I get why directors relate to mirror because of the fact that it's all about experimenting with a film, the form of visual storytelling. Yes. What personal filmmaking is. And we talked a little bit about poetic linkages in Tarkovsky's work when we talked about Ivan's childhood. And they're throughout all this film. But the mirror is chock full of them. And you have individual montages, you have images that connect emotionally but not narratively. And it's one of those... It's one of those amazing movies. It is one of my favorite movies. It's it's right there with Stalker and Rublev for me. You know, it's one of those movies where it's like sort of like you with nostalgia, where it's like I don't necessarily get what's going on as far as the a, a general story, but I yeah. just can't look away at it. It's just very beautiful. I- that's what I find myself with most of Tarzowski's films is I can't really say I fully understand everything that's going on or, or even really have the patience for to uh, to to watch in full, but you can't help but not keep looking because he just presents to you uh, something so beautiful that uh, you, you do want to keep watching. So he makes, he, he's always made very engrossing movies um, and while they are challenging, when you finish them, you have this appreciation of not just for the work themselves, but for what he was trying to say in them. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mentioned that uh, Tarkovsky's father was a poet. Um, right. And when it comes to the mirror, there's only a, 
there's only a handful of dialogue in the film that actually feels necessary to the to an appreciation of the film, and that's the narration right. that we hear, and there are poetic readings from Tarkovsky's father, and those are the only moments of dialogue and speaking in the film that feel really necessary to understanding sort of where Tarkovsky is coming from when it comes mm-hmm. to the uh, film in general. Right, and, and again, he's using the sepia tone in the, in the opening scenes. You know, it, it, uh, uh, it, you know there, there are those little hallmarks, uh, such as the poems and such as the visuals. You know, by the way, it's a Tarkovsky film. Yeah, and uh, it's, it's one of those movies that you really see the connection between uh, Tarkovsky and Bergman come through because yes. there's yep. the opening of the mirror uh really reminds me sort of of the uh moment the opening of Bergman's Hour of the Wolf which breaks okay. the fourth wall and you have like a a character in the movie actually actually uh talking to the audience and uh I don't know if you've seen Hour of the Wolf it's it's the closest thing I think to a horror film that Bergman ever made. Um, oh, interesting. Maybe Persona, but it yeah, starts, I was gonna I was gonna mention Persona. Yeah, yeah. It starts with Liv Ullman, uh, at in character, uh, discussing her on-screen husband, who is played by Max von Sydow. We haven't seen him yet. Before that, over the credits of Hour of the Wolf, you hear basically the. You you hear the sounds you would hear on the building of a film set, and so mm-hmm. it sort of breaks the fourth wall. And I feel like the beginning of uh, the mirror sort of is Tarkovsky's homage to what Bergman's doing in that film, and in at least the opening of that film. But I think there are other films, uh, not just The Sacrifice, but also to a certain extent Nostalgia that I think sure a lot more in common with uh Bergman than the mirror does but yes. that's that's one of the more interesting uh little aspects of the mirror that I really like that you you sort of see this relationship to the experimental nature that sometimes Bergman can play in at times when as a storyteller oh yeah absolutely um uh some of the yeah, I, I I agree. I mean, when I think of Bergman, yeah, some of Bergman and some of Chazowski, they they do have a lot of uh, similarity. Another filmmaker I would actually compare Chazowski to as well, or, or rather, other way around, uh, Terrence Malick. That he has a lot of uh, Chazowski in his work. You know, just a lot of the same sort of visual sensibility and the sort of poetry that he brings into his work. Mm-hmm. No, and I, I haven't seen every uh, Terrence Malick film, but I mean, I've definitely seen enough to where, yeah, that that connection to uh, Tarkovsky is very clear. I mean, it's been, yeah. it's been years since I've seen Badlands and uh, Days of Heaven. Actually, it's been years since I've seen pretty much any uh, Terrence <laughs> Malick film. I, I've, I, I admire Malick more than I like him. There, right. there are parts of his filmmaking style that I really like, uh, but for the most part, I just have never really gotten into him the way that I have yeah. filmmakers like Tarkovsky. Sure, yeah. 
But uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely see the uh, connections with uh, Malik's work as well, especially especially when you see, especially with the uh, uh, the Tree of Life. I can uh, yeah, you can definitely mm -hmm. see you can definitely see uh, a lot of Tarkovsky there. Thin Red Line, I can definitely see a lot yep. of uh, that style, and it uh, especially with. Not just not just stalker. Although I mean, I think that from a standpoint of uh, the long uh, takes, certainly I I think Ivan there there are moments in Thin Red Line that probably were influenced by Ivan's childhood as well. Yes. Um, but uh, yeah, I I definitely see the connection. Be that there's definitely a connection that can be made between those two. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 weird because of the fact that to a certain extent it's it's kind of disingenuous to just uh, compare Tarkovsky to uh, Kubrick. I mean, that's probably oh, yeah. one of the more that's one of the more obvious connections you can make as far as American filmmakers. But at the same time, right. Kubrick is even even some of his even something like Barry Lyndon or Two Thousand One a completely different ball game from uh what Tarkovsky is doing although right exactly I mean 2000 I mean you know from I if I remember correctly in the Solaris Criterion one in the uh essay they have there like it it says that or maybe it was Roger Ebert's review but basically Tarkovsky wasn't a fan of 2001 so to a certain extent uh that might have been you know that might have been part of the reason he made Solaris, but in the same point, I feel like I've always had this, I've always felt this connection between 2001 and Stalker, so yeah. I, and I feel like Stalker's the more personal of the films, uh, sci-fi films that Tarkovsky made, and yet it's got a lot in common with me, for me to a film that Tarkovsky allegedly didn't even really care for. So. Yeah, that's really interesting. I I didn't know that, but uh, I think one of the reasons why uh, Stalker uh, does feel more personal, because uh, if you look at 2001, Kubrick, uh, many accuse Kubrick of being uh, a very cold filmmaker, but I, I feel like I feel like that was he used that to his advantage. I felt like there was a purpose for that, uh, so he wasn't. Uh, Exactly like a, um, he was a personal filmmaker, but not quite in the sense of uh, of showing a lot of heart. He showed the truth. Yeah. And I yeah. I feel like Terzovsky showed the truth while also showing himself. So a lot of what you see is Terzovsky himself. I think that's the big difference between the two of them, if you can make any kind of comparison. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, and the thing is, it's like, I do think, and I, I would... I would almost argue that like both Kubrick and Tarkovsky reveal a lot about themselves and their work. It's just yeah. that what they reveal, like Kubrick reveals more the cynicism of his worldview than Tarkovsky does. Exactly. Tarkovsky, yep. Tarkovsky is revealing his, his, his emotional connection to, uh, mm -hmm. to the world and to, exactly. uh, and to life in general, and that's one of the things that comes through crystal clear in every one of his films, um, from Steamroller and the Violin and Yvonne's Childhood to Solaris, The Mirror, uh, Stalker, and Nostalgia. 
uh, all the way up to uh, the last film they made, uh, The Sacrifice, uh, which he made as he was dying. Um, he wow. actually died shortly after it was uh, released in America. Have you ever seen The Sacrifice? I, that, that's one of the few I haven't seen either. Okay. Uh, Sacrifice, it, it's a movie that, it's, it's sort of like Yvonne's childhood where my feelings about it have gotten, have, have become more appreciative than they probably were the first time I saw it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's basically, you know, I talked about it a little bit with uh, when it came to nostalgia because they both they both star Erlen Josephson. Uh, the movie was made in Sweden on the island of Faro. Uh, Sven Nyqvist, uh, who was Bergman's longtime cinematographer, shot uh, the the sacrifice, and ah. is and Erlen Josephson's character. Uh, it is his birthday. And um, he has friends and family coming to celebrate with him. And uh, during the day, uh, during the a point in the day, uh, they feel uh, jet fighter jets go overhead, and they hear on the radio that the bombs for World War Three have uh, left, and uh, they're on the brink of World War Three. The sacrifice of the title is uh, Erlen Josephson's character uh, asks God to sacrifice his family and loved ones if uh, he will sacrifice himself for his family and loved ones. Oh. It is, and it is, it is one of the most, even though it's sort of in between uh, Tarkovsky's films as far as Length. It's only about two hours and twenty minutes compared to sure. Stalker and Rublev and uh, Solars, but it is. I mean, if you want to talk about long takes with uh, Stalker, Solars or the Sacrifice certainly is not uh, bereft of long takes, and oh. uh, it's it's very deliberately paced, and it's definitely the work of somebody who. Had mortality fresh on the uh, fresh on the brain, uh, yeah. Which, and there's if you ever see uh, the sacrifice, uh, it's it's available on Blu-ray, I believe, through Kino. Uh, that's, okay. that's how I have on Blu-ray. Um, there's an amazing documentary called directed by Andrei Tarkovsky that was basically filmed during the making of The Sacrifice. It's been on every DVD and even video release of The Sacrifice. It is uh, narrated by Brian Cox. And it's, it is one of the great essential uh, documentaries about making a film, I think. If, if the book, Sculpting in Time, sounds a bit unwieldy, uh, directed by Andrei Tarkovsky is a great uh, alternative because you really get a clear distinction with uh, Tarkovsky's uh, filmmaking process as he's going through uh, the sacrifice. And the big climax, um, and one of the things that, there, there are a lot of things that I that came through uh, watching Sacrifice uh, in preparation for this podcast is 
the beginning of the sacrifice where Erlen Josephson's character and uh, his very young son, Erlen Josephson is not a, a young guy. He, he was, in, in the 80s, he was a relatively, he was even then kind of on the older side, but he's got a very young uh, son in this movie. Um, and they are planning a, uh, they're playing a tree, a, a Japanese uh, tree. Uh, mm-hmm. Josephson's character is very fascinated by Japanese uh, culture. And uh, you see him in kimonos, you see him listening to Japanese music. Uh at some point in the f- some points in the film, uh, the beginning, the opening scene with Josephson, the boy, and uh, the mailman who's uh, come to thank to uh, wish him a happy birthday and is a friend of theirs. It's it's one of the warmest scenes uh, Tarkovsky has ever made. It's it's full oh. of it's it's filled with uh, humor. And a lot of heart, and it's not much in the way of the uh, more philosophical uh, discussions that we'll certainly get into later in the film. Um, mm-hmm. And it really sort of lays out. Uh, it sort of it it does a good job of kind of laying out the stakes for uh, Josephson's character as the film goes along. Uh, and but one of the things that's interesting is. You there's a question lingering over the film as to whether uh, World War Three is actually going to happen, whether it's something in the within the reality of the film, or whether it's a dream of Josephson's character. You're never right. quite sure because at the end, uh, and we're going to get into spoilers here. Uh, the movie's thirty. <laughs> the movie's thirty years old, but the fact of the matter is, it's. It's a fascinating movie. If you're a Tarkovsky fan, it's it's definitely well worth seeking out, regardless of whether you know anything about the movie or not. If right. only to watch the way he ends this uh, movie. But by the end of the movie, you have you have the basically the middle of the movie is devoted entirely to Josephson's characters, his struggles with this question of World War Three and this sacrifice that he wants to make for his loved ones. Of right. His life for theirs. But there's an interesting question as to whether that he's dreamed that World War Three is happening or whether it is actually a part, of, and is a part of reality of the movie. And part of the reason that you can question is at the very end of the movie... When Josephson's character has really reached um, very much the same uh, emotional uh, grounding that uh, Josephson's character Nostalgia makes uh, when he has his protest and uh, self-immolation at the end of the movie, you see his family members eating breakfast the next day as if nothing is going on, as if nothing extraordinary is going on. And, right. Uh, so you you that's one of the things that makes you wonder. Well, is this really all happening, or is it something that's just uh, in his thoughts? And uh, it really is. Uh, it really is saying that this was the movie that Tarkovsky was made as he was dying. It's about bargains and the sacrifices one makes at a time when we know that we may die, and. Uh, 
given who Tarkovsky was as a filmmaker, it's hard to imagine an end of his career that would be uh, as fitting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's not. Well, it sounds. It sounds. I. I would curious to see it now, based on that description alone. And and I haven't even gotten to probably one of the most amazing set pieces in the movie, which I will not. I, which I will not spoil, because it truly does merit seeing the movie just to get to the climax. Which and when you watch directed by Andrei Tarkovsky, you will see just how amazing. Uh, the way he made this uh, climax is. It it just really, it is an image that you will never forget. Uh, it is comparable to, it it is comparable to the uh, ending of Andre Rublev, which is the one film we've never, we haven't really touched on yet. Uh, mm -hmm. But I do have to say, uh, if you haven't seen The Sacrifice, I definitely recommend it, especially if you're a Tarkovsky fan. Watch that and watch uh, directed by Andrei Tarkovsky. Yeah. They're always, like I said, they've always kind of been a double bill together on home releases. And you will be absolutely transported by the the way the ending of this film unfolds. It is Interesting. Just, just something that I've I've never forgotten from the first time I saw this film, and it's just ah, something else. Uh, that's awesome. So we are going to close. It it it's weird because of the fact that um my my two favorite Tarkovsky films. Uh, the first one is probably Stalker, uh, which we talked a lot about earlier, and I I think it's safe to say it's probably your favorite as well. Uh, absolutely, and, it is my uh, favorite. Yep. My next favorite is his 1966 film, Andrei Rublev, which oh. is one of the greatest films I've ever made, I've ever seen. And it is, I, I sometimes go, I've, in the past few years, I've sort of gone, gone back and forth as to whether I consider this my favorite or not. But in the end, I think uh, really Stalker's uh, the one that solidifies it. Andrei Rublev is a largely it's it, it's interesting because it's about a real person. It's about a real Russian icon painter from the uh, 14th century. Uh, it has real events that take place in it. Uh, the Tartar invasion, uh, namely, and the that opens the uh, second part of Rublev, but it is largely. There's not a whole lot known specifically about Rublev apart mm -hmm. from his art. So this is basically, it's a biopic, but not like in the sense of how we feel about biopics. Right. It was really, it, it was a movie he got into a lot of trouble for with the Russian censors. Uh, there were a few cuts of this movie made. We already talked about the fact, the original cut of the movie was close to three and a half hours. Uh, oh. the, the original cut that I saw in video or started to see on video was a little over three hours. It 20 minutes of the uh, cut, 20 minutes of the movies that had been cut. But apparently there's another one that was cut by 40 minutes that was released in America in the, four, in the 70s. And 
I don't even want to think about what that cut was like because of the fact that <laughs> I can't imagine it being uh, less than what it is. Andrei Ru- Rublev is a fascinating film because it is very episodic. It it deals with episodes in the life of Rublev without really a uh, straight line uh, narrative even though, if you really think of the structure of the film, it deals with a straight-line narrative. Uh, yeah. So one of the things that's interesting about the balloon, the introduction with the balloon as well as the casting of the bell at the end is that one is a great accomplishment that fails, the other is a great accomplishment that succeeds. So you have this through line of success and failure uh, happening on a continuum. And it's the faith of the people who are doing those acts that is essential to the audacity of what they're doing. And that's something that's constant throughout uh, Tarkovsky's film. Uh, because one of the thing, one of the key points in the film that we get to is Andrei Rublev has been uh, commissioned to uh, paint The Last Supper in a church. But mm-hmm. he he basically gets artist block. He can't do it because he doesn't feel comfortable doing it. Right. What that scene would mean, what that scene would represent. And so that's kind of the middle middle point for this, this faith of artists or creators who are doing something that they are very passionate about. And we see, we see moments that fail, moments that succeed, and moments in the mo- middle where you see the doubts about what mm-hmm. they're doing. Rublev just is absolutely... There's so much to unpack about Andrei Rublev, and it's fascinating because of the fact that there are a lot of... Uh, it feels like there's a lot of dialogue in the Criterion release, uh, which is the full three-and-a-half-hour release, uh, that is missing, that hasn't been translated. And so it's it's interesting to be able to try to piece together this, this story as it's going on. And because of the episodic nature of it, because of the fact that there are moments that connect, tie into one another, but at the same time, it's basically, it's very episodic in nature. And mm-hmm. each moment is... A little film that basically creates this larger film about the ambition and the faith that requ- that is required to do great acts, and that's something that Rublev loses sight of, uh, both when he's commissioned to do the Last Supper and when he finds himself stuck in the middle of the Tartar invasion, and. In the Tartar invasion, he kills somebody, and at that moment, he promises God that he is not going to paint anymore, and they take and he takes a vow of silence, and so he loses sight of what he's supposed to be doing, and it's only the creation of the bell, which is like I said earlier, was played the bellcaster and the young bellcaster who claims to be to know the secret of bell casting uh, is played by the same kid who uh, a few years earlier played Ivan in Ivan's childhood. 
it's only through witnessing this amazing act of a community coming together of this arrogant individual who is it's kind of fleecing the the prince to say and and authority to get this bell made and he actually doesn't and the great surprise at the end of it after you hear it ringing is he admits to Rublev that he didn't know the secret bell casting that it was all an act of hubris on his part but was one that he was confident that he could do and mm-hmm. it's one of the great moments I've it, the the bellcast basically everything from the introduction of the bellcaster on is just one of my absolute favorite stretches of film in movie history, and that the ending of that movie just always uh, always moves me whenever I see it. That's beautiful, yeah. Yeah. <coughs> and Excuse me. It's mm. it's a movie that is it's it was made completely in black and white with the exception of the very very ending where you see the actual uh, frescoes and uh, paintings of Rublev at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's largely in black and white and it's I've been dying for Criterion to re-release this in Blu-ray because the, the DVD Criterion is non-amorphic. Which means uh, okay. my TV, it is just a horizontal. It's a rectangular box in the middle of my. TV. Oh, I see. And it yes. is so frustrating to watch. And like, <laughs> I need the whole. I mean, yes, you're getting the entire picture, but it's so small on a 55 yeah. inch TV. It's like yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, I have it on. I have it on VHS. I have to. I have to uh, watch it again. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting, and uh, so yeah, the the Criterion is is different from the VHS on Rublev because it is twenty minutes longer, and there's more. I think it was like forty percent of the subtitles were actually restored. Oh wow! From the uh, three hour cut to three hour twenty cut, twenty five minute cut. Uh, that Criterion put out. Um, but the interesting thing is, it's like, even though Criterion, you know, touted it as, oh, it's the director's cut, the ironic thing is, is that uh, uh, Tarkovsky actually ended up preferring the shorter cut, which is really interesting. And that I is really seen, interesting. I haven't seen the, uh, I haven't seen the three-hour cut in uh, some time. I don't know that I've ever seen the entire thing the full way through. I'm curious what was uh, taken out. Um, there's several scenes. One of the most interesting scenes in the movie for me, and it's probably my favorite, which is saying something concerning the fact that we talked about Last Temptation of Christ last year. Mm-hmm. The the depiction of the crucifixion that <clears throat> takes place in Rublev is fascinating. And part of the reason it's fascinating is because it's, filmed in Russia in the winter. So you have snow, which obviously you wouldn't necessarily have in Judea. So yeah. or the Middle East. And so it's really interesting to watch and everybody's bundled up and stuff like that. It's very it's it's a very interesting 
it's a very interesting staging of the crucifixion, not just because of that, but it's just such a haunting version of it. It's yeah. It's it's done mostly in wide shot, uh, and it's done over narration of uh, it's it's done over. Uh, Rublev is talking to one of his assistants. They're they're having a discussion, and that's when this is. So the crucifixion is kind of one of these poetic linkages we've discussed with Tarkovsky before, uh, where it doesn't really have a whole lot to do in terms of the themes of Rublev, but it's also a part that it it has a purpose. And it has an emotional purpose, and has a, it has even if it doesn't have a narrative purpose as well. Right. There's a lot of the movie that really uh, that I feel like it's it's probably the most uh, nakedly religious uh, movie Tarkovsky ever made, uh, and because of the fact that Rublev was a Russian icon ma- painter, and icons were. Uh, of religious were paintings of uh, religious figures uh, that and religious scenes that that makes sense, but it's interesting that you see a lot of uh, pride is very much punished in this movie. Uh, you have the uh, other painter, the other monk, uh, the painter Kirill, uh, who you see early on in the movie. Uh, he is afforded the chance to work with uh, one of the great painters of the Aerotheophanes, the uh, Greek. And uh, he his arrogance, Kirill's uh, arrogance gets the better of him when he wants uh, Theophanes to uh, come to the monastery himself and offer to him in front of Rublev. But, Rublev, but he actually sends a uh, an assistant who offers the position to Rublev, thus humiliating Kirill. And uh-huh. uh, that leads Kirill to go out into the uh, secular world to paint. And we see him later uh, at the end of the movie after Rublev has taken his vow of silence back at the monastery. And uh, it's there's so many fascinating... Uh, pride is very important to the... Uh, thematic structure of the film. You see it in the uh, person uh, in the balloon at the beginning. You see it in Rublev. You see it in Krill. You see it in the bellmaker. And uh, you you see... It's it's fascinating that there's the one time where Pride is really not punished in the movie for one way reason or another is the, bell, the creation of the bell at the end. And uh, it's one of those... And I... It's it's interesting to think about that uh, the the humility is of the bellcaster at the end the way he breaks down to Rublev uh, when Rublev confronts him and he tells him the great secret that he's been hiding that he doesn't know the secret of bellcasting. It's amazing that in that one moment in that one form of accomplishment that Tarkovsky does not punish somebody who's extremely prideful. It's the one moment in Rublev that that does not happen. And of right. course, it's at the climax, but at the same time, that's part of what makes what happens at the end, the fact that that bell ends up ringing so suspenseful, so suspenseful and so rewarding when it does. Uh-huh. How many times have you seen Rublev? 
I've seen it, uh, I want to say about three times. Yeah. About two, three times. Not very many. Um, first time I saw it again, I was in high school. So I didn't, I didn't really appreciate it as I do now. Um, but, uh, yeah, it took me a few viewings to really get into it. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, and, and it's by far Tarkovsky's longest film. It's almost three and a half hours or right. hours, regardless of how you see it. It's his longest film easily. Uh, and it's, it's interesting because of the fact that the structure, it, it does take a couple viewings for the structure to really come into focus when it comes to Rublev. Yeah. And uh, yeah. that's his second film. And it's like, it's, it's astonishing to me that that's his second film. And it's like, it's so gigantic as far as it, it's so ambitious as a project. And uh, especially coming off of Yvonne's childhood, which is noticeably smaller scale. But I mean, there's, right. there's a lot of big ideas in Yvonne's childhood, but it's smaller scale to this. I mean, he, the, one of the big set pieces is not only the creation of the bell, the casting of the bell and the ringing of the bell, which you must have been enormous undertaking, uh, but there's also an entire invasion. I mean, it's relatively small scale to what you can do now, uh, but the fact of the matter is, it still feels huge. It still feels like an enormous undertaking for somebody who probably didn't have a tenth of the resources and uh, financial backing that uh, he you you might give him now and uh yeah and i mean they're watching it watching it it's like it it makes me curious i i thought back to uh i kept thinking about lawrence of arabia watching rublev this time around and uh because they're very they're both structured unlike what we normally think of when it comes to big epics about big historical figures yeah and I mean, especially yeah. with Rublev, it's a three and a half hour movie about painter. And the funny yeah. thing is, you never see him paint in the entire movie, even during the <laughs> That's last. That's true. Supper. Yeah. Even even when he's supposedly trying to paint the Last Supper, you never actually see him paint. Uh, yeah. But he is. He's. There are moments where he's he's a witness to the world as opposed to mm-hmm. the protagonist of this world, and that's one of the things that is so brilliant about what Tarkovsky does in the film and the fact that throughout the last 45, 50 minutes of the movie, Tarkovsky, you see him, or Rublev, you see him, but he's just watching. He's watching as a distance. He's, he's very much like Tarkovsky in that he is, he is watching the world at distance. And uh, right, it's right, and he, yeah, and he's making his his creations from a distance, much like how Tarzowski does. He expresses himself through his art, you know. Yeah, and he's using his, and he ends up using his art as a reflection of the world. Right, exactly. Right, lives in, and that's one of the that's one of the ultimate points of uh, Andrei Rublev. But yeah, this this. I mean, all of all of Tarkovsky's movies, regardless of whether you're talking about something as seemingly daunting as Stalker or uh, The Sacrifice or 
something as straightforward as the steamroller on the violin or Solaris or something as avant-garde as Rublev or The Mirror. And there's, there's so many things that can be discussed about Tarkovsky. And he's, he's one of... He didn't create a lot of films, but the movies he made matter. And there's a reason that they matter. Because they... They come from. They all come from a personal place. Uh, they right. all come from a very particular point of view of the world, and it's one that just really resonated with me when when it came to the first time I saw uh, Stalker twenty years ago. And it's right. And like I said, I don't know that was thinking about I don't know whether Stalker was necessarily my first foreign film. It feels like it was, but it may not have been. But it was my first it was one of the it was at a moment where I was really my my film love had really come into focus a few years earlier with movies like The Crow and Pulp Fiction and yeah. Wood that I would that I started to discover and I discovered this whole other aspect of filmmaking beyond Hollywood. And yes, and Tarkovsky's films and Stalker in particular, and really his, his work in general, without his work, it would have been, I don't know that I would have been as keen to get into uh, world cinema the way I have uh, with Bergman, with Kurosawa, with, Mm-hmm. Uh, Fellini, with any of with Truffaut, with any of the uh, filmmakers that I've come to grow and really admire over the years, and uh, Tarkovsky is an important place piece of that. And uh, his the fact that Stalker and Andrei Rublev still mean as much to me as they do is a great testament to not just the uh, not not just you know, the willingness of me as a viewer to give them this chance, but also Tarkovsky's uh, ability to suck me into his world and to really right. resonate with me in a way that really few filmmakers have ever really done. I agree completely. Uh, there are there there are two foreign filmmakers for me that really did that for me when I was really getting to uh, filmmaking, uh, and, and really appreciate filmmaking more than just as entertainment, but as art. It was, other than some of the great American filmmakers like Scorsese, like Chimino, like uh, uh, Coppola, et cetera, et cetera, Terzowski and Truffaut were always the two for me that I always went back to over and over again. They both had an incredibly amount of heart and humanity and also beauty in their films that, uh, that really transfixed me into viewing them, like you said, much more than most filmmakers are able to do. Yeah, and I'm finally really starting to dig into Truffaut, finally. I mean, I had seen 400 Blows a while, long time ago. I had seen Shoot the yeah. Piano Player a long time ago. I had seen Fahrenheit 451, which was my first film of his. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, I'm really starting to get into uh, the rest of his movies. Jules and Jim, I just watched. Stolen Kisses, yeah. I just watched. And uh, I, I'm absolutely head over heels with him. And yeah, I mean, it is the, it, it is the personal connection that you feel with uh, Truffaut's work, which is the same personal connection you feel with Tarkovsky's work. It's just exactly you know, yeah. it, the only difference is the way they present it. 
and the way they tell their stories. Truffaut is very much transfixed with old storytelling techniques, old Hollywood techniques, and being able to tell stories, tell his stories in those, in that uh, way. Tarkovsky is, Tarkovsky is somebody who marched to the beat of his own drummer in very much the same way Kubert did. Uh, but with a different emphasis that Kubrick did. I mean, Kubrick was more, took a more cynical approach view of humanity where Tarkovsky really, ultimately, I think he does see, he, he does see the heart of humanity. He does see the spiritual nature of humanity to, uh, and he, he wants to make it, um, he, he wants to, deepen your horizons i think as a filmmaker more than uh a lot of filmmakers do and in his own way and i think he doesn't insist on his worldview but he invites but if you're willing to to let him in he's willing to uh invite you to see things in a different way and i think that's one of the things i've always appreciated about tarkovsky oh absolutely yeah that's what i appreciate about him as well is that he he was never heavy-handed in his approach. He always it always had a gentle well, I don't know if gentle is necessarily the right word, but sort of but like you said, like like he invites you into the world rather than uh pull you into it. He 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 sort of slowly invites you into this world mm-hmm. and he keep and he keeps you in there for as long as for as long as you can take it. He he he's he's really good at showing the beauty. Uh, that surrounds all of us. Uh, that sort of makes sense. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, no, absolutely. And I, I think he, he was, he was a filmmaker where uh, I, I would, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, it's like we, we've got this whole, uh, we, we've got this whole industry of faith-based filmmaking uh, that's cropped up in the past uh, fifteen of uh, twenty years or so, say. And uh, I, you know, it would be interesting to see, and most of them are just very uh, generic and very, uh, very bland uh, looks at faith and very, very predictable. And they're not, they, they basically are saying the same thing over and over. And it's like, I would almost, I, I would encourage anybody who, who who likes those type of films and in very much the same way that I would like to invite people of faith to really look with an open mind to Scorsese's faith trilogy, which we talked about last year. I would right. like to see the same thing happen with Tarkovsky because of the fact that I think I I think ultimately the message and the the worldview that Tarkovsky presents it can be difficult to get into. I get that from the filmmaking standpoint, but from the emotional mm-hmm. standpoint is absolutely, I think, something that uh, that many people of faith could probably relate to. Oh, yeah, for sure. And and uh, going back to what you said earlier about how how he's very rarely in, in, the, uh, in the top 10 directors and how his movies are very rarely in the top 10 of, films of all time with exceptional sight and sound. Um, the reason I bring that up is because in some weird way, there are 
not many filmmakers, well, who, who I know anyway, that even heard of them. It amazes me that they never even heard of them. And I'm like, I'm like, how do you not? How do you not hear this? It's like, it, you know, and so it's it's weird. Uh, in some way, he's known, but then in another sense, there's a sort of quiet uh, side of not many that do know him. And I think that I think that also too reflects in his filmmaking. His filmmaking is very quiet in the sense that uh, meditative, reflective, and and it takes a lot to get into from a filmmaker standpoint, like we're talking about here. Uh, and that, that almost in a way reflects on his legacy. Well, and it's funny because it's funny that you mentioned that you, 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 uh, you know a lot of filmmakers that didn't really, hadn't really heard of him. It's funny because when I started to get to know filmmakers like yourself and some of the other ones I've gotten to know over the years, I found that he's arguably a little more known from younger filmmakers such as yourself than I actually expected. And, yeah. uh, and cause for a long time, because of the fact that even my friends never really had heard of them, they weren't really into foreign films as much as I did, except for my one from Jeff, who I mentioned who loves the mirror, loves Solaris, but had a hard time yeah. getting the stalker. Uh, he, he's big into foreign films though. And so it's not really surprising that he would resonate with uh, that Tarkovsky would resonate with him, and he's mm-hmm. he's interested in a very particular type of film. So that doesn't surprise me. But yeah, it's like I've it, it's weird. I mean, not just you, but there are a couple of other filmmakers um, that I've come to know that are like, yeah, I mean, Tarkovsky is somebody that I they had heard of, and it's not a lot of filmmakers, but it's more than I expected. And so it's yeah. like, okay, that that actually that actually and you can once you start to know that it's like you you start to see that influence in their work and you start to see that it's like okay, I can see that. I can see that. Right. Yeah, it makes sense that mm-hmm. um, Exactly. Yeah. And uh so yeah, but for for a while, I was I I did kind of feel like I was on my own little island when it comes to Tarkovsky. Now, nobody, oh, I did too. Nobody yeah. had really heard of him, and I I think the sad thing is, it I think part of the reason is, I'm sure part of the reason might have had to do with a he's a very difficult filmmaker to get into. I I would yes. fully admit that. And if all you know is Hollywood filmmaking, that's going to be inevitable that you're not really into his work. I kind of get that. Or haven't yeah. really heard of his work. But the sad thing is, I also kind of wonder how much of when he was making films, because he was a Russian filmmaker in the middle of the Cold War. And because of the tensions with between America and the Soviet Union at that time, you do kind of wonder whether if whether if things had been different for him in terms of the way his films were released, the way those relations were in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, whether he might have had more of a reach and to where maybe he would have been an obviously uh, well-regarded filmmaker in the same way we view Kurosawa or Truffaut or Bergman. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's, that's one of the things that you kind of 
wonder too, because the 24 years that his career uh, span from 1962 when he made Yvonne's Childhood or when it was released at 86 when The Sacrifice came out. I mean, we were still in, you know, I mean, the Cold War, by the time he was ironically making movies outside of Russia, uh, was coming to an end. But at the same time, I mean, there's the fact that he's a Russian filmmaker, you know, and I think sort of, a lot of people might be expecting more something different from him than what you are going to get. And I think that's right. And that's one of the things I like about him is the fact that it's like, he's not a filmmaker who obviously, um, who, who obviously is telling the type of stories that you would necessarily expect a Russian filmmaker to make during those times. Right. But, uh, yeah, with all, with all that being said, uh, it is. This is probably a pretty good time to wrap up. I mean, we we there's a lot of ground to cover. I mean, you know, we we yeah. talked about three films when it comes to Scorsese. We talked <laughs> about eight films when it comes to Tarkovsky, yeah, and yeah. there's a lot to talk about with all of those films. Um, yeah. I'm really glad we were able to do this. This was this is definitely a lot of fun. Oh, good. I'm glad. Yeah, I yeah, I, yeah. I always. I always enjoy getting into uh you know when we when we do get into film discussions on uh Facebook I always enjoy that and uh you know I I know I I kind of perked up the first time I kind of got the impression that you were a Tarkovsky fan on there it's like ooh okay he's, yeah. he's all right there's another Tarkovsky fan there's another one yeah about yeah um but thank you very much for doing this and thank you very much for uh sharing your insights on Tarkovsky and it was it was it was definitely I'm I'm always kind of interested in how people uh one of the things that I'm really wanting to focus on with uh, the podcast this year is less less about me how I view films and more about bringing other people into how they view films and how they view specific filmmakers and so right I mean this is definitely something I want to continue <clears throat> want to continue not just with you but with uh, other people as well so thank you very much for uh, for doing this with me no thank you for inviting me this was this was great it's great to see like you, like you said somebody else that knows about Tarzowski and not only can talk about him but can talk about him in great life uh, I don't know I don't know many that can so this was and you know at the same time I learned new things about him that I never knew so yeah so this was great yeah, and uh, if if uh, anybody listening to this is interested, uh, four of Tarkovsky's mu- movies are part of the Criterion Collection, Andrei Rublev, Ivan's Childhood, Solars, and uh, Stalker. Uh, you can find uh, the other films he made, The Sacrifice, Nostalgia, The Mirror, and Seymour Learn of the Violin on... Amazon, I believe. I, I think, actually, I got all of those through Amazon over the years. Um, ah. And uh, if if you can find a, uh, non-exp- a not expensive version of his uh, copy of his book, uh, Sculpting in Time, uh, if you're a Tarkovsky fan, it's highly recommended. Uh, if not, I would definitely, I definitely would check out... Uh, when you uh, watch The Sacrifice, uh, definitely watch the documentary uh, directed by Andrei Tarkovsky. It gives you a lot about uh, him as an individual and him as his, with his process as a filmmaker. Uh, 
But uh, thank you very much to uh, Chris Asper for joining me tonight. Uh, I definitely, I now I need to, you know, now I want to figure out a different another uh, filmmaker to uh, tackle uh, filmmaker, yeah. films to. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because this is always fun. So, and being able yeah, to. Yeah, it goes to Truffaut next. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Truffaut would actually be a very good example. Because, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've gotten more into his, uh, I've gotten more into his films over the past year. He was my uh, bookend filmmaker for a movie a week this past year. So yeah, uh, yeah, he's, he's definitely, he's definitely somebody who's officially on my radar and he's definitely somebody mm-hmm. that, whose work I definitely, I, I really love. So uh, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that may yeah. very well be the next one is uh true. Yeah. I was, I was, I was going to perfectly fine. I was going to, yeah, it's also. I was gonna say you have to see Day for Night next. That's that one's probably my favorite of his. I think that is. I think for Truffaut, I think that is my next one. Actually. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Maybe not, but it it's definitely one that's it's definitely one that I want to see next. Uh, it's definitely yeah. it's definitely one that's going to be seen at some point. Maybe in the next. I I might uh bump it up there in the next year. So uh, nice. Yeah. Thank you very much, Chris. Uh, Thank for, you for doing this. Uh, this was a lot of fun, and uh, oh, good. I'm going to uh, sign off right quick, and uh, you know, make sure we got everything, and uh, we'll wrap this up. That's Matt. All right. I'd like to thank Chris Hesper for joining me this evening. It was really wonderful being able to talk about Andre Tarkovsky with him. I've been looking forward to that podcast for a long time, and I definitely look forward to more discussions of more filmmakers with him uh, as we go along. Uh, We're already in talks of probably doing one on Francois Truffaut, who we mentioned on the podcast this evening, and uh, that should be an entertaining one as well. Uh, Check us out again on Sonic Cinema Patreon. Uh, Chris is actually a patron, so I uh, definitely hope uh, to get some people to to uh, join him. Uh, I've got a lot of great things uh, lined up for bonuses for people who uh, pledge to the podcast. And uh, thank you for joining us. And this is Brian Scuttle for the Sonic Cinema Podcast. And I uh, hope you have a good day. Thank you. (laughs) 